0: Jay Monahan became the fourth commissioner of the PGA Tour in January of 2017 and has worked for the Tour since 2008. Today, he explains the history of the PGA Tour, how it is navigating the COVID 19 crisis and debates over racial justice, and how it plans to safely get players back out on the links. Let's listen in.
1: Good afternoon to everyone. And it really is my honor and pleasure to introduce my friend, Jay Monahan. Jay became the fourth commissioner of the PGA tour in January of 2017, succeeding another friend, Tim Fincham, who I believe is on the call. Uh, He started working for the tour in 2008 and Jay has continued Tim's exceptional stewardship of the game of golf and tour, including generating extremely generous donations to charity, which totaled over $200 million last year. Jay, no matter what he says is an excellent golfer in his own right as he exemplified within the last couple of months when he made two holes in one within one week including one at the famous island hole number 17 on the stadium course at tpc sawgrass jay as you heard a little bit from glenn as i shared with you no labels has become an extremely effective and vitally needed vehicle by supporting practical bipartisan solutions to solve our country's key problems through the 50 members of the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House and approximately a dozen like-minded senators. I know the business and political leaders who are on the call are looking forward to hearing from you about a brief background on the extensive scope of the PGA Tour, how the tour is navigating the health and economic challenges in the current racial unrest, including I think it's interesting your decision to put a pause on tournaments and current plans for restarting the tours next week, and also the future of the touring, including on what basis fans will be able to start attending tournaments. After about 10 to 15 minutes of opening remarks, participants will ask questions. And thank you so very much for taking your very valuable time to share your insights with no labels. Jay.
2: Hap, thank you. And, and, uh... Thanks to everybody for for having me here today. It's uh, it's great to be with you on this Zoom video conference call. And uh, before I get into it, uh, a moment that's very clear in my mind to this day was Sunday, March 22nd, when Hap, myself, and a few other business leaders here in town got together 10 feet apart from each other. And we talked about where we were at that point uh, as a country, where we were uh, with the economy and where we were. Uh, with our respective businesses and how we could chart a path to to reopening. And, Hap, every time I see you now, I think of that moment and uh, the encouragement that you gave me at that point in time. Uh, I, as as I said, it's an honor to be here. And I'll just, let me just, before before we jump into where we are, I just kind of step back and just try and level set so everybody has an understanding of how our organization is structured and and what we do. Uh, the PGA Tour is a 501c6. We are a not-for-profit membership organization. Uh, we have no owners. Uh, people may think of of our organization solely as the PGA Tour, but the business is much more, much more global, and I would say much more complex. And that we operate six tours uh, around the world in 130 events. The three that you know most are the PGA Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, and PGA Tour Champions. We also have offices in Beijing, Tokyo, London, Seoul, Mexico City, and Toronto. When you think of our membership, uh, Hap mentioned Commissioner Fincham. Amongst the many things that happened under his leadership was uh, the global expansion of the tour and the increased uh, international composition of our tour. Today, we're 93 players from 28 countries. Uh, and our mission is by showcasing golf's greatest players, we engage, inspire uh, and positively impact our fans, partners and communities worldwide, creating playing and financial opportunities. You're all running businesses or you're all involved in big businesses. For us, our, our governance uh, is pretty simple. Uh, we are governed by five independent directors, by four player directors. Uh, our independents and player directors each serve three year terms and the sitting president of the PGA of America. The players that are serving right now are Jordan Spieth, Kevin Kisner, Johnson Wagner, and James Hahn. And I think the reason I point that out is that when uh, we were faced with the realities of COVID 19, uh, the amount of time that we've spent with our board and a level of engagement from our players has been exceptional. Feeding into our governance is a player advisory council of 16 players. For those of you that follow the PGA Tour, we have the likes of Rory McElroy, Justin Thomas, John Rahm, Paul Casey, Harold Varner III, the top players, all the way to players that have been out on tour for a long time and those that have vacillated between PGA Tour and Corn Ferry Tour, our development tour. Uh, We've got great media partnerships and and NBC, Golf Channel, uh, CBS, and now Disney with ESPN Plus. Ironically, on Monday at Players' Championship, we announced that those agreements, which are through through 2021, were extended through 2030 to the tune of a $5.5 billion commitment. That was Monday of that week. And as I went on the set to make the announcement, it was at the market opening and the market was down 1,200 points, um, but uh, I, I digress. We also have a great international uh, media partnership uh, with Discovery where we partner in placing our rights and maximizing our presence around the world. So that's, that's, that's a little bit about who we are. Hat mentioned, you know, we generated $200 million for charity last year. We've generated over $3 billion since inception. And every one of our tournaments is operated by volunteers. Uh, some of our events have up to 2,500 volunteers who are serving three, a minimum of three eight-hour shifts or 24 hours as a volunteer. That's how the whole system works. So COVID-19 happened for us the week of our flagship event, the Players' Championship here at TPC Sawgrass. At the beginning of the week, we were... We were crisis, uh, crisis management planning for the subsequent weeks, and by the time we got to Thursday afternoon, it was clear that we needed to cancel the event and, and step away from professional golf for an undetermined period of time. That undetermined period of time ended up being a total of 13 events, which, uh, which is quite significant. And we, we identified, as many of you have, and as you've heard from so many, the outset we know what we're good at. We're the best in the world at running professional golf tournaments for the best players in the world. But this was a situation where we needed to rely on, on true experts. So we worked with our medical advisor, worked very closely with epidemiology, epidemiologists, uh, worked very closely with local and state authorities and the federal coronavirus task force, amongst many other constituents, to slowly start to build a plan for our return. Recognizing that when we did return, it was likely going to be without fans for an extended period of time. But for us, when you when when you look at the PGA Tour, we we run uh, we run the global golf schedule. But four of the biggest events, the major championships, we do not run. And all four of those major championships uh, were either going to be canceled or it was it was uncertain whether or not they would be able to be played. So for us as a business, given that we had fallen offline, we decided that we needed to go down the path of resetting our schedule, working with our our industry partners to replace those those events and dates, uh, and then to reset our schedule through the end of the year, which we were able to do by April 16th. And then as a membership organization, playing 49 events, with canceling thirteen, we had to ask ourselves and involve our players in whether or not we could complete our FedEx Cup season. We determined that if we were able to return in the time frame that we had identified, that we would be able to do so. And fortunately, that's the path we're on as we return to a Fort Worth, Texas, next week for the Charles Schwab Challenge. And then the final piece to the puzzle was our was our, our testing and our safety program and protocols. And we've talked quite extensively about this in the public as we launched it, but to put it, to, to, to help you understand it, if you're a player that's playing in an event, you're tested before you fly, you're tested immediately upon arrival. We have a partnership with Sanford Health. We will have mobile, mobile uh, labs that can quickly turn around tests so our players can compete and we're not taking away local resources from the communities where we're playing. Then each subsequent day, we have a layered approach where players will undergo thermal screening. They'll be prompted a health questionnaire that's seeking to identify symptoms. And then we have worked with United Airlines so that if, if a player is moving from tournament to tournament, we have charter flights. Any player or caddy that gets on the charter flight has to have been tested on Saturday to be on that Monday flight and obviously test negative for the virus. We're in a world of anywhere from 30 to 70,000 people that could be on property in a normal event. Right now, uh, as we return for the first four weeks, we're players, caddies, a production crew with CBS Discovery that's a third of the size it used to be, a volunteer crew that's about 15% of the size that it used to be, and then few select staff to run the competition. So over the course of a given day, there could be anywhere from 800 to 1,000 total people that are on the 200 acres of property. The other thing I'll say that that has been very inspirational for me is to see the response our players have had as we've we've been away from professional competition. Uh, Our players, combined with our tournaments, combined with two exhibition events we had in Florida, the TaylorMade Driving Relief event and the match, have generated $36 million for COVID related charities, and we haven't played a single event. And that's the beauty of our, that's really is the beauty of our sport. And our players are excited to get back to work next week. So that's where we stand relative to, to our, our return. And uh, I, I'll, just, I'll just say that in closing, we are invited guests in every single market that we go to. So when we return, We need to make certain that the governors, the mayors, those individuals in the towns have been a part of the process and fully support our return. And we have been very aggressive and very transparent throughout the process. And we're not sure where this virus is going to go, but we do know at this point in time, as you look forward with our schedule, uh, we are a welcome guest back into those communities where we've done so well together through the years. As it relates to, the current civil unrest, you know, you, you look at, you look at the pandemic and, and that's, that's not something any one of us were a part of creating. Now we get to this, this situation that has emanated from um, Minneapolis and with George Floyd. And it's, it's, it's clearly something that is going to, has been with us for a long period of time. And it's something that we are going to, are, we are dealing with right now in real time as we return. And so one of the things that, that I did, you know, as, as just as a human being and as a leader of this organization late last week and over the weekend is I, I wanted to step back and speak to uh, a lot of my black colleagues, a lot of our uh, African-American players, folks in the African-American community. And for me, I, I just needed to be completely honest about where I was and where we were and the fact of the matter is, as as I said in the communication to our players and to our to our employees, you know, there's the the expression we've all seen: if you're not a part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And at this point in time, I can't tell you what the solution is, but what we are going to do as an organization is we're going to get on a path where we're going to be a part of the solution. We're going to participate in the dialogue. We're going to be real with each other, and we are going to use our platform and we're going to use our sport as we have with every other challenge in the past, uh, to make a difference. And so that process is, is ongoing. I continue those conversations inside the PGA tour, uh, and outside the PGA tour. In fact, uh, was with one of our, one of our players this morning, Harold Varner, the third where he and I did a and a to all of our membership across, uh, across our tours, but it's, um, You know, I think it's, I don't have, I don't have the answer. A lot of, a lot of us don't have the answers, but I do know what has happened here and we're fully committed to, uh, to be, as I said, to being a part of the solution. But what I will say is that over the last several years, this organization um, has, 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 has made a significant effort on the diversity and inclusion front. Uh, I was a part, I was one of 160 CEOs who signed Uh, The Action Pledge alongside Tim Ryan, CEO of PwC. Uh, We have made a great effort to uh, create an inclusive and welcoming culture here at the PGA Tour. Uh, Every single employee in our organization has undergone unconscious bias training. Uh, We have a leadership team uh, that uh, has created an an inclusion uh, leadership council where we have eight objectives, clearly identified measurable objectives that we're seeking to accomplish over the next three years to to grow in this important area of our, of our business. And as an organization, we created six employee resource groups, uh, Advancing Women in Leadership, uh, Connect You, which connects our tour employees through educational, charitable, and career development opportunities, again, while building a more uh, inclusive and productive w- workplace. We've created Core Multicultural, which assists in the evolution of cultural change at the PGA Tour. Honor, which provides education about and support for our women, men and women in uniform, as well as their loved ones. Prism, where we invite, educate, engage new allies to achieve full inclusion for people who are LGBTQ plus at the PGA Tour. And then Tour Life, where we support innovative network of employees seeking healthy work-life integration and provide opportunities for connection, education, uh, and change. And it's been amazing for me as a leader of this organization to see our employees step up, uh, step up to these responsibilities and for us candidly to grow as an organization. Um, So that's that's where we are. Like I said, we return. We return next week in Fort Worth. We also return here in Jacksonville with the Corn Ferry Tour. Uh, at uh, TPC Dyes Valley. And uh, the final thing I'll say is that we are, I mentioned the fact that there are a number of other organizations that we partner with, and it is a remarkable opportunity right now for our sport because, uh, and we recognize that because so many other sports I've got two young girls, and if you're a parent and your kids are playing sports, there are a lot of player, a lot of sports that have been suspended, and we're not certain when they're going to come back. And there's some challenges uh, that relate to physical contact and how you can play certain sports safely. And for golf, we've stayed online here throughout the pandemic. Um, now golf is is available to people in 50 states. 97% of golf courses are open. And with fewer and fewer recreational opportunities. I think the beauty of golf is now becoming even more apparent to people. And now that we come back really early, early stage relative to other sports, hopefully we're going to shine a light and, and help make a big difference to get more people playing our game. So have that, that is 15 minutes on the dot um, and I'm happy to, uh, to answer any questions anybody has. Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks for being a fabulous leader in our country and in our community. We're very, very, blessed here in the Northeast Florida area to have the PGA Tour here, and you as its head. The first question is from somebody you know well, who I think saw that hole in one on uh, number (laughs) 17, Oster Munoz.
3: Uh, Hi, everybody. Um, It's been a long time since I've been here in Florida, uh, but it's been great to spend the last few weeks that I've had the chance to interact with both Hap and Jay on the golf course. So it's been great. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I had two questions, but you've answered them. Uh, So then I'll just make statements. I I applaud the issue, Paul, with regards to travel and safety. I think, uh, Jay, you and I have talked about it. It's an important part of restarting the economy. Uh, We can all sort of shield ourselves away and say, don't move, just quarantine. Don't, you know, my group, my team is comfortable not having to travel. I don't promote travel for travel's sake, but I do promote travel for the fact that it's, you know, travel is part of the ecosystem for our economy and it's important. And I... All the calls that I've been on today have been about the restart, so I applaud the efforts um, that you're doing. And then second, and uh, it wasn't going to be an issue, but you raised it. I think this racial divide issue, it's, it's real, and it's been real for a really long time. And frankly, as a person of color myself, I get tired of talking about this because people just look away. You know, it's like, of course he would say that. What we need is thoughtful leadership from folks like you, Jay, and others on this call. Um, that don't look like us, that can have those efforts, have those dialogues, and the best thing we can do in this world is get educated to some of those issues. It makes an issue, and I think we all learn something from it, and I was part of the rally last night in Jacksonville, and uh, as I tend to do, I stopped in a couple bars that we ended up walking up just to, to talk to folks who were sort of mocking the crowd and wondering why they were doing that in these times. And, and people mm-hmm. have reasons what they do what they do, but it takes all of us uh, working together uh, to make, you know, this planet thing kind of work out for us over the long run, because 2020 is just getting biblical, right? I just read that asteroids are coming our way or something. So <laughs> it's crazy. So I applaud those efforts, Jay. Again, more of a statement than a question. Happy thanks for having me. Uh, and I'll hopefully join more, more times for other other topics.
1: For those that may not know, Oscar's the uh, retiring CEO and current chairman of United Airlines. So uh, we thank you for participating in the call. Uh, Stamen Ogilvy, I think, has a question.
4: And I believe I am already
5: unmuted. You are. Good. Jay, (laughs) it is no surprise to any of us who are uh, longtime golf fans that the PGA Tour has been as resourceful, as thoughtful, as involved in coming up with uh, uh, in all of these areas. And that is commendable. Uh, So that's the non question part of what I say. Mm I missed if you said what the criteria would be for determining when and how and to what extent fans will come back on the course. And if the answer is we have to feel our way along and decide uh, week to week how that is going to happen, then I would encourage you to pay attention to the city of Houston, which just had 60,000 people day before yesterday in an area much smaller than 400 than, than multiple hundred acres. Yes, and uh, it was shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder. And if in two weeks we find that uh, We don't have a big spike in the incidence, Then I think it would be a useful data point to consider uh, That as indicative Of how this virus is really at this stage uh, transmitting itself
2: well, I um... You know, one of the challenges that we have is that not only do we want to re- return, but we want to have a sustained return. And so when you go back to that time frame I was talking about setting our schedule and identifying the week June, of June 8 to 14, if that, well, you're going back to mid-April. At that point, it was very clear that for the first couple of weeks, the only way we were going to get local, state, and, and support from our own medical advisory, medical team was to play without fans which is why we tried to keep it to a four-week window. Texas now has gone to phase three, and uh, they specifically said that sport sporting venues can now have 50% of the fans that they typically have. So technically, we could have fans next week, but we just think that the right thing to do is get back, get our players comfortable, get everybody in our ecosystem comfortable, and then slowly build off of that, even though it creates financial challenges for us, Uh, The financial challenges will be far greater if we come back, introduce fans, and then we go offline for another set of weeks because we haven't done it the right way. So to your point, we're going to be, you know, we're working very closely in markets weeks five, six, seven, and eight right now, plan without spectators and a plan with, and much like the reopening of our economy, the 10, 25, 33% numbers are generally the range that we're talking about relative to where we've been in the past. In two weeks,
5: we'll have a pretty good indication of how it worked here in Houston.
1: Thank you. We'll be following. Thank you. Jim Bernstein has a question for you, Jay. Hey Jay, thank you very much for the opportunity.
6: Um,
7: The question that I wanna ask you is, um, I ask as a golf fan and as a sports fan and as somebody who buys TV time as part of my job. And um, the question is, And also, I I suppose it dovetails with your thoughts about, uh, you know, being part of the solution and about creating a welcoming culture. Um, In the medalist event, I thought that the uh, inclusion of Charles Barkley, who is not a golf guy, but who is clearly a television star, greatly enhanced the product. Mm. And I wondered if that would um, that kind of uh, flexibility would endure into the future as you cover golf events. As I watch golf events, I enjoy them very much, but the medalist event was incredibly enjoyable as an entertainment product in addition to a golf event.
2: Hmm. Well, Jim, that's a great point that you make. And I referenced the new media partnerships that we announced in March, bringing ESPN, ESPN plus back into the fold. Um, For us, that's an opportunity to reach beyond our core fans to be able to tap into the strength of the ESPN audience and the talent of the ESPN audience as we go into the future. The match is in partnership with AT&T and Turner that allows us to bring new personalities forward. We continue to invest in developing talent on PGA tour Live and some of our domestic and some of our, some of our over the top platforms that we think ultimately will contribute to the experience you have on cable and network television So I think that you're one of the key takeaways is when you're in, you know, introducing new perspectives, introducing new personalities, introducing people with different, uh, different ways that they've gotten into the game. Ultimately, creates greater interest. And so we have been aggressive on that front, and I think you can expect to see more and more personalities come forward. Not only as commentators, but you're going to see some announcements from us with other iconic athletes and individuals uh, who have done wonderful things in their respective sports or industries, but also have, have enormous hearts that are going to be more closely aligned with some of our tournaments and how we move forward as a sport. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ken Sciato.
3: Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks. Um, I'm a, a, a mediocre golfer, but a great golf fan. And um, you know, I guess a, a couple of things. First of all, just uh, trying to attract some younger people uh, to the game. I know my son, you know, used to play it, but now it just takes too much time, and you know, I, I struggle with trying to keep him interested. But the match with the miking the players added just a, such a, a, an interesting dimension to, to watch it, and also a more it was yeah. both entertaining and educational. You think you'll do that with some of the tour players? Because I, I just love to get you know get inside their heads a little bit. It was really Fascinating. Thank you. So how old is your son? My son is 21.
6: All
2: right. We're going to, I'm going to work on him with you. Um, as it relates to, uh, to miking. So he, here's, here's the challenge. And I hate to start with challenges, but you got to look at what the match and the tailor made events were. Those were events, fundraising events for charity. In the case of the match, Tiger Phil, two iconic, PGA tour players coupled with Tom and, and Peyton, two iconic NFLers. For us, it was it was a great opportunity to reach beyond our core fans. And because it is for charity and not for a championship, there's an inherent levity and a comfort that our players bring forward that doesn't exist when they're looking at one of their peers and they're trying to beat them, catch them, or win that tournament. So you we have started to over the last two years, we've been miking early round. we We're now miking on the corn Ferry Tour to condition players that are coming up and onto the p j tour that that's that is our future. But we have to find some of the right moments to do that, and we got to you have the right players to do it. One of the things that you'll see when you watch CBS this week is because of the fact that, Uh, We're not going to, we have a limited production crew. We're going to have robotic cameras on property where on certain holes, a player can go into a tent, an open air tent and speak into the camera and answer a question from a a fan answer, you know, talk about where they are and around. And so you'll see some of that come forward, but it's um, it's very clear that listening to Phil Mickelson, talk about how he's going to hit a pitch shot to a green, you know, to an elevated green to a back pin flag and then actually execute it is really compelling. You know what he's trying to do, but you actually can't think that way. And, and I think we, the more we can pull that forward, the better off we're going to be. And uh, back to your, back to your son. I do think that, um, you know, just getting a club in the hand, going to top golf, playing three holes, six holes, nine holes, whatever it is, just, you know, getting them on that path. You look at you, you're playing, you've had all the success you've had in your life. Goals Golf's a big part of it. And the people you meet, um, it's unlike any other sport. So Thank we got to keep helping the 21 year olds. So Tom McInerney.
4: Yeah. Thanks. Hap, And uh, thanks Jay for, for being hey, on call. I, I had a question, uh, about, uh, what the thinking is on caddies and players. And we have the same issue in our club and the issue the caddies touch the clubs and all that. And so just be interested in, how are you gonna handle that for the upcoming tournament?
2: Yeah, so we are. Um, we had a conference call with over 300 caddies uh, a week ago Wednesday and we walked through the competitive protocols and our social distancing and our com- uh, competitive protocols are a uh, condition of competition. So if we see violations, a, ca- a player or a caddy will be warned And ultimately, if they're not following the protocols, they won't be able to continue to participate. That's how seriously we're taking this. But ultimately, what we're saying to the player is it's simple things like you're keeping your six foot of distance. But when you're talking about yardage, you're the one that's grabbing the club. You're the one that's putting the club back. Um, The caddies have, have disinfectant with them. They're disinfecting flags, they're disinfecting holes, they're disinfecting grips. You know, in between shots, and we've literally have gone through what can happen over the course of, of 18 holes, and where some of the sensitive spots are for the player-caddy interface. I'm not saying we have it perfect. We think we've identified most of them. We have to be willing and ready to adapt, um, but we also recognize that you know, seven to 10 million people are going to be watching, and we're going to they're going to be looking for where there are mistakes, and um, we're hopeful to avoid a lot of that and do it the right way. Thanks, Chad. Good luck with the tournament. Thank you, Bill Galston,
1: You have a question.
8: Ah, uh, I actually have two questions. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, I was really, I was really struck when Ken described himself as a mediocre golfer. Uh, I would say I'm a passionate hacker, you know, who aspires to mediocrity with no hope of ever achieving it. But that doesn't that doesn't affect my love of the game. Uh, so here's uh, here here are two questions. They're very different. Number one, uh, I love watching golf on television. You know, the Masters is my favorite event of the year. Uh, and for your business model, how much different difference will it make? if you don't have actual fans on the courses for an extended period of time. So that's the business question. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the social, here's the social question. Uh, I said, I love the masters. Well, as you know, it wasn't until 1990 uh, that the Augusta national allowed in a black member. It wasn't until 2012 that they allowed in a woman member. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I have to say that looking at the television uh, every week in the good old days when golf was on every week, uh, the sport still doesn't look much like America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the affirmative steps that PGA is taking to try to remedy that? Because I think the future of the sport depends on remedying it. Uh, two
2: two great questions, and on the on the first one. We 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 have planned out no fans through the end of the year, and well into next year. And there are certain assumptions that you have to uh, accept uh, when you go through that analysis. And keep in mind that our ability to stage an event is highly contingent on our ability to find a title sponsor to underpin a portion of the purse. And to underpin it, underpin a significant part of the television. So you have to have title sponsors in position. And assuming that you do, and we do through the end of this year, then every market is different. And and one, it's gonna, it's gonna depend on how they've operated in the past. An event like the Waste Management Phoenix Open that has over five hundred thousand people there over the course of the week is going to be far more damaged than an event that doesn't have a lot of fans or spectators typically. But to our business, when you net it all out and you add it all up, you know you're talking about a an impact of hundred million dollars. Uh, that's a significant impact. Um, and and fortunately, as an organization, uh, through the years we have built up like good companies do a healthy operating reserve. Um, we're taking steps to mitigate against that number, controlling our operating expenses, and we feel very good about feel far better today than we did on that day. I got together with Hap. March 22nd and I was looking at what the total exposures were without really any mitigation efforts but Bill for, for us it's that, that's, that is that is quite meaningful. Um, and then you know as it relates to the sport and and whether or not it looks like uh, America, I, I, and, and I understand the points that you made relative to some of the other organizations and some things that have happened in the past. Um, again, I, my, my predecessor, Tim Fincham, and, and President Bush over 20 years ago announced the formation of the First T. And through the First T, uh, we've reached over 15 million young people, teaching them life skills through the game of golf. We do that in over 150 chapters uh, in the United States. We've now got four outside the U.S. We're in a number of schools where we're teaching kids life schools and get life skills and getting clubs in their hands. And really what we've tried to, to do is to, is to utilize that program to introduce the game to a far more diverse uh, audience, to, to, to a younger demographic that's far more diverse than the demographic of today. And it is having an impact. Uh, if you look at what happens with a first tee open out at Pebble Beach, you look at what's happening at the junior ranks, you look at what's happening across the board, the numbers are moving in the right direction, albeit they're not moving fast enough. And so for us, the first T is our is our that is it's it's actually our it used to be an industry effort is now part of the PGA Tour foundation. And it's to me, it's a business unit within the PGA Tour. Every person that works here is accountable to contributing towards its growth and success. And to us, that's the fundamental vehicle that you layer on top of the commitment our players have to support the game and diversify the game and make it welcoming and use this point in time to. To celebrate it and move it forward
1: Good question and thank you Uh, Maxine clark has a question for
9: you Jay. Well bill pretty much asked it. I was trying to think about how we could engage more young people in uh, the positive Golf is such a positive sport takes a lot of time and attention and concentration How could we figure out in and that you don't have to answer this today, but I think it's a question we're thinking about in schools in uh, predominantly African American and Latino neighborhoods in their school, developing golf teams and getting them into the the sport of golf because it really is it, all my complaints about how much time my husband spent on the golf course. I know how much good good he did, also how many connections he made, how many things uh, were really uh, positive, and he misses being able to do it. And I would say that I think that with kids, if we could inspire them in the same way, that connectivity, that networking that aspect of it that's so uh, important could really change their lives. Not to be great players necessarily, but to have a good hobby.
2: It, very well said. And, and I will, I will, I do want to respond to that in that we with the 150 chapters, you know, these kids are coming to those chapters after school. They're coming on the weekend. They're seeing, they've got mentors. They've got people that are teaching them life skills, showing them the game of golf. When you're in close to 10,000 schools, We're sending equipment into the schools and that gets disaggregated from the chapters. So one of the things that we are doing right now is we wanna make certain that we have a direct interface with those schools. We're able to be able to network these kids that are benefiting from this curriculum and then solve the challenge of access. So can you take what you learn in the school, come to a first T chapter and if you're going through the first T ultimately how do we solve for access when you're in high school, when you're in college, when you're trying to get into the professional world, recognizing that some of these kids don't have the ability to play. And so that's one of the things we're trying to solve for right now in real time.
9: Uh, thank you. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, I teach, at, by the way, I teach sports management at NYU. Um, wow. So my first question has to do with what Bill asked on the economics. Um, If it costs you a hundred million, do you have a sense of what the impact on the cities are?
2: Yeah, it's, um, so right now, Elizabeth, we've canceled 13 events. Uh, And in those 13 events, we generate roughly between 70 to $85 million for charity. And so when you don't have an event, there's no money that's going back into those communities at the outset. And so one of the things that we've worked very hard to do is we've reconciled cancellation of events is to work with the tournament organization in that market and the sponsor to try and leave money behind. So for example, in New Orleans, we canceled our event, the Zurich Classic. We worked with Zurich, Zurich came back and said, we generated a million and a half dollars for charity last year in New Orleans we're gonna donate a million and a half dollars this year. And so one of the things you've seen and we've seen is that these companies get so closely connected to the communities where they're sponsoring the events, in a moment like this, that loyalty shines through and they're doing a lot to offset the losses for charities uh, in that community. And then you have economic impact. And so you look at the number of people that are traveling into that marketplace, you look at the global exposure that that city uh, that that town is getting, you know, and and you're you're talking about anywhere from, depending on the studies, you know, twenty five to three hundred million dollars in economic economic impact a week, uh, so it's white. It's quite significant.
9: Thank you. My second question is: We've been watching um, the impact of esports on yeah. non esports, and I was just wondering how you're embracing esports as you're moving forward.
2: We are. Um, we we have a team that's been in place for 18 months that is focused exclusively on esports. Uh, we launched a game uh, actually during the pandemic, which is uh, which is titled by Justin Thomas, and we're in discussions with some of the bigger players right now. We think our sport lends itself uh, to esports quite nicely. Uh, we also think that with uh, with sports gaming becoming more and more legalized state by state the connection between esports and gaming um is is significant so we're i would say that we're 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 very focused on the area and you're going to hear a lot more from us in from that area in the next six to 12 months
1: be interesting michael small
5: hi jay there was um recently uh series of rule changes um, about a year plus ago, one of them fortuitously, um, not having to take the flag out, um, was good for the pandemic um, and dealing with it. Um, Do you see future rule changes coming to improve the issues associated with the pandemic?
2: You know, the, uh, the rules are governed by the United States Golf Association and the RNA. And what I will tell you is that the rule changes in the past, rules were changed every four years on a four-year cycle. We've gotten out of that business, and to their credit, they're 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 really operating in in real time. We're talking to them uh, about the way the game has been affected, both recreationally and at the highest levels. And I do expect that you'll, you know, I think you'll see more leniency, and you'll see. You'll, you'll you'll see you'll you'll see progress on that front and I wouldn't expect it to be long But I would expect it to be in small chunks as we go forward as we learn more about how the game's being affected by the pandemic And uh Time like the way you answered his first time Ackerman. the
1: like the way you answered his first question so much He's going to ask another question
4: <laughs> Thanks for having, uh, and thanks jay and this just to build off what bill gaston's and maxine uh, clark's question you know, my my dad taught me the game, and he played. He, he passed away recently, but he played into his his 90s. And I've had the the pleasure along the way of doing a lot of uh, fundraising with former NFL, NBA, NHL, other pro sports. Uh, many uh, many whom are uh, minorities, and they're they're passionate about the game, and they're a lot of them are great players. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, and and you talked a little about first tee, but I, but I do think one of the things that uh, I think we can encourage to get, particularly inner city kids and first tee. is, you know, you can play, you know, basketball and all those other great games. Uh, but you know, you're going to live, hopefully they're all going to live a long time have, have good uh, lives. And I, I do think that one of the benefits of golf is you can play it forever. Just want to get your comments on that.
2: Yeah, I think, um, listen, I'm my dad, 78, he's carrying a six handicap which is criminal because he's taken all of our money but you know i played golf with my dad since i was six years old and um you know and i'm now 50 and we've traveled all over the world i got two young brothers that play and play well and we play all you know we're always either playing or talking about playing and we've experienced so much together and it's it, it is it's generational um it's the one game that you can play to the very point you made about your dad for as long as you're alive. Um, And um, I'm a big believer in the book, Oh, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. I think golf takes you to some amazing places and it introduces you to some remarkable people. And I think that's the thing that we need to continue to stress to, to, to young people. It, It is, there's no better way to network. I mean, you and I go out and play golf. If I called you and said, Tom, I'd like to come and sit down with you for four hours and, and get your opinion on something or learn about you or learn about, you know, learn about your business. You'd tell me to go fly a kite. But if I asked you to go play golf, you'd probably at TPC Sawgrass, you'd probably say per- yes, pretty quickly. And from that can come a lifelong friendship, a business relationship. And and that's something that we need to continue to, to reinforce and stress to young people who are thinking about what they want to do with their lives and and, and how they want to achieve fulfillment in their lives.
4: I think those are great comments, Chat. The funny thing on, on on that is I have three daughters, and they're now 30 to 36. And when they were 5 to 12, I tried passionately to get them to play golf, and they did soccer and lacrosse and all those things. And now they're mad at me in their 30s because I didn't force them to play golf. And they're all just starting to pick it up because of, they realize you know, they're now working and doing well in their careers. but not having the connections with some people play golf and knowing how to talk about it and so on has, you know, been a big impact. So hopefully there'll be an opportunity, uh, for, uh, you know, girls, women, minorities to, to also take up the game. Uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable how interested they now are in it when they weren't at, when they were growing up.
2: Now I've got two girls that are 15 and 17 and I've, I've failed. I've tried every trick in the book. I'm slowly getting them to, to hit balls with me and get out in the golf course, but it's, uh, I'm going to get them there and, and they're going to, and we're going to have a lot of fun together.
1: We have eight daughters between the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> Girls are a, a great thing. Jay, thank you so, so very much for joining us today. Uh, Bill, I'm gonna turn it back over to Bill Galston, uh, who's going to close it. Or make can, some I, can
2: I ask? Can I ask one more question? Do you mind if I ask a question of the group and get some feedback, or you have a hard stop?
1: No, we have a hard, hard We got ten minutes, so okay. absolutely.
2: So I, I want to go back to I want to go back to the comments that that Oscar made at at the beginning, and 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 kind of merge those to where I what I was saying about how we, the PGA Tour, are dealing uh, with racial injustice in this current situation we find ourselves in, in this country. And to me, as I look at what can we do to address this through our sport, and we're gonna, we're we're certainly gonna lean into the first tee and do more and more on that front uh, to make a positive difference. But we're here in Jacksonville. We play in every community around the country, uh, and the reality is, when you go back to, you want to be a part of the solution. If you want to be a part of the solution, my question is—or I'll make a comment and then a question—when we're affected by—when someone is affected by cancer, we know where we can invest our money and make a difference in the fight against cancer. When we see a lack of educational opportunities for kids, we know organizations that we can invest in that are going to help uh, eradicate that. As you look at this situation right now, it's unclear to me where i could invest either financial resource or where i could contribute our platform to make a difference and i just would love to get everyone's perspective on either ways to look at that or or any any advice on on where that might be
9: i have uh, some thoughts on that i spend a lot of time in the uh, under-resourced communities here in st louis and um, i meet some of the most talented young people i've ever could imagine meeting with many many entrepreneurial ideas we have. If we don't believe that, then we really have a problem, because everybody says, oh, "I'm going to move my IT department to North Carolina from St. Louis." There's not enough talent. I said, "Come with me. I'll, I'll let you meet some talent." And I think that's the part that we all have some biases that we don't um, open up to new thinking. There is tremendous talent, and if you engage these young people in solutions, in ideas, and how can we get more young people involved in, like in St. Louis? So we have great courses and everything. We have summer camps around golf. Unfortunately, they're not operating this year. I don't think I'm going to check on it, but we have to, we have to believe in them and we're going to have to invest some money. This is hundreds of years of, of discrimination. You can't make up for it in one year or two years. And we honestly um, want, we want to do it that way. We're business people. We want it to, the results to be there tomorrow, but I promise you, there is talent. Um, I, my husband and I mentor five or six kids that are in college at Duke at Harvard all kinds of places. And they came from some of the worst neighborhoods and the worst family situation you could imagine. And they're thriving. But when they get into social situations, sometimes they don't thrive so much because people discriminate against them.
6: Hey, Jay, this is Glenn Lowenstein. If I can just jump in. Can you hear me?
2: Yes, yes I can. Yes.
6: So yesterday, Reverend Emmanuel Cleaver, who's a representative, of house rep from uh, Kansas City, made this point. He said, this summer is very dangerous because of the pandemic, the hot, the unemployed. Here's one thought for you. You know, many people in our society, Sandy Weil, who ran a big financial conglomerates, traders in Chicago, all start caddying. And they caddy and they learn about people they're caddying with. To me, you know, there's, I think golf is probably being played more as we speak than in the history of the game. Because, you know, rounds at every club are up three X. What I'm wondering if there's some way to this platform to ask people who are unemployed, young people who want to caddy, to come out and caddy and meet people who are playing golf and caddy and make a few bucks. It's just one of those natural things that we've kind of forgotten, but it's a way to use all the games that are being played in the courses to help some people make a few bucks and learn about society. Just an idea.
1: Good point, Gary Chartrand you had a, a a comment and then I do think we need to turn it I uh, got one from Jim Bernstein and then turn it back over uh, to Bill Galston to uh close out and then oh, if you yeah. if you want to send me any other comments or suggestions you might have for Jay and I'll
10: forward them to him So Jay uh good to see you, good uh, to see you. Uh, I Thank you for everything that you do at the tour to try to solve some of these inequities. I know you've been a big supporter of education and certainly here locally. Um, One of the things that I think COVID has shined a light on, not only do we have educational inequities in our country, but we have a digital divide as well. And I think technology is so important going forward that not only do we have the, the educational inequity, now we have a digital inequity. So millions of kids living right here in downtown Jacksonville don't have access to the internet. They've got to go down. If they do have a computer, they go down to a McDonald's or Subway and sit in front uh, to try to connect to the internet. So anything that could be done to get computers in the hands of kids and making sure they have access to broadband um, as you travel around the country and try to raise money for doing the right thing, I would just say that that's that's one area that I think you could really make a difference. you guys actually, I don't know if you know, Jay, but you've supported our effort here in the, through the STEM hub that we built, getting hands into inner-city kids' uh, computers, and it's just making a world of difference. They can now do their homework uh, at home at night with a computer when they have a computer and, and have access to the Internet.
2: Why don't we work on that together, Gary, right here in Jacksonville?
10: Okay. I'll, I'll, be, I'll ring you up.
1: Right. <laughs> Love to connect. Thanks, everybody. Um, uh, Jim Bernstein, real quick, and then uh, Bill Galston's going to close. Um, Jay, this is Jim.
7: The uh, suggestion I wanted to make, and I don't know if you feel this would cheapen the competition, but in terms of growing the game and exposing the game to a broader audience, um, there's a tremendous hunger for (laughs) televised sports right now. I think it would mean a lot. I think it might uh, grow the audience to have really great players, Uh, from other sports like Larry Fitzgerald and Steph Curry and guys like that, and maybe give them exemptions into some of these tournaments. And I Mm -hmm. think it might mean a lot to see people, uh, you know, for young people to see people who look like them playing your game uh, might, might really increase the exposure. And I don't think those guys would embarrass themselves. and I can't imagine that would hurt the sponsor's feelings to have guys like that out there because, uh, you know, fans of every race and every background really enjoy seeing those guys.
2: Good point, Jim. We've done some of that. We'll do more of it.
7: Bill?
8: Yeah. Well, Jay, first of all, let me thank you for your willingness to share your time with us and for not ducking the tough questions, but answering them head on.
6: No, we appreciate that.
8: Calls. Thank you. Uh, I've, been, I've been thinking I, about some the mean... relationship between golf and the mission to no labels. Uh, I've noticed something about golf, and that is golfers are united uh, by their respect for the rules, uh, by the intensity of their competition, and their love for the game. Uh, And competition that's conducted according to the rules doesn't drive the players apart, it brings them closer together. Uh, And it makes the game attractive for people. For people to watch, fans are attracted by that sportsmanship, not repelled from it. Unfortunately, our nation's politics right now is very different. Right there's a sense that there's a sense that the competition does not lead to friendship or cooperation, uh, on or off the course, <laughs> and people are turning away. Ordinary people are turning away from what they what they're seeing in disgust. Uh, The mission of No Labels is to try to make our politics more like golf, you know, where there's respect for the rules, a sense of responsibility for the game as a whole, and a desire to cooperate, not just compete. Uh, And everything we do, bringing together Democrats and Republicans, the House and the Senate, and eventually, we hope, the legislature and the executive branch, is trying to turn it into an arena of competition where, yes, there are winners or losers in the short term, but if you do it right, we all win. So thank you for giving us an inspiring model. And we just hope that uh, 20 years from now, if we reconvene this meeting, we can say that we helped make our politics a little bit more like the wonderful game of golf. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It was an honor to be with you. COVID-19 has impacted sports in so many ways, and the PGA Tour is no exception. It had to cancel over 14 events this spring, and now, even as the sport returns, it will be under very different conditions. The current plan is to return without fans for an extended period of time, and with intensive testing and precautions for players. Instead of the usual crowd of 30,000 to 70,000, upcoming events could now garner crowds of just professional players and crews of only 800. This is the new world of sports in 2020. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.